The word of God where it says, There is no need for me to write to you about this service to the Lord's people. For I know your eagerness to help, and I've been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year you in Acacia were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. But I am sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready, as I have said you would be. For if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not one grudgingly given. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work, as it's written. They have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Thanks, Steve. Thanks so much, Ben. It's um, always an encouragement to open the scriptures and I've just been blessed hearing that passage read out again. I've had a real blessing this week just preparing for today. And that's not normally the case when you preach on giving because it can be a very sensitive sort of subject. Um, It's interesting some of the the feedback that you get when when you do preach on this subject. Some people, you know, find it a little bit touchy, but I've really found it a great encouragement. I want you to just think about this this morning. Um, Have you ever forgotten to do something or said that you would do something and then it's kind of just gone off into the ether somewhere? Just straw poll, put your hand up here. Yes, and those that haven't got their hand up have forgotten. (laughs) Right. Okay, so 
perhaps you promise something for a friend, and you know, you're going to do something, or you offered to give them something, or you meant to return an item you'd borrowed and you just haven't got around to it, or you intended to catch up with a relative or a neighbour, and whatever it was, you didn't quite get around to it. Okay, reflecting in people's eye. We can't have that. Thank you. You know, you did, for whatever reason, you didn't quite get around to it. So uh, there was a time when Robin said to me, and I was heading out somewhere, and she said, look, can you just uh, pop into to Woolies and grab a hot chicken on the way home? And I said, yep, no worries. Well, I pulled down the driveway into the garage. Oh, no, that's right. Reverse back out and off and grab the chicken. <laughs> she said, why did you take so long? <laughs> Well, there's a story. I forgot. In 2 Corinthians, Paul emphasises that the Macedonian churches had really been diligent in taking up an offering to collect for poor Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ back in Judea. The Corinthians, though, had promised that they would do the same, but hadn't got around to doing it. And about... A year nearly had gone by. He says, last year you said that this would happen and I'm just a bit concerned. I haven't heard anything about this collection for the Judean Christians like you promised that you would do. So I can just put a quick PowerPoint up just so you get a little bit of a handle on what's going on here. Here's Corinth. This, this area, if I had one of those pointers, I'd... I'd point, but over this section where Corinth is circled, that's what we now know as Greece. So the southern section of Greece is where Corinth is, not really very far from Athens. That area is known as Achaia, and up the north is Macedonia, where we have Thessalonica and Philippi. So the letters that we've got in our New Testament, First and Second Thessalonians, Philippians, were written to those congregations up in the north in Macedonia. So Macedonia is northern Greece, Achaia is southern Greece. Thanks for that. The Macedonian Christians, meaning the Philippians and the Thessalonians, despite their own poverty and persecution, had responded graciously to the Apostles' call for a collection to help the Christians of Judea who'd become poverty-stricken through severe famine. This famine had been prophesied about in Acts 11. You can read it in verses 27 to 30 in Acts 11. Uh, there was going to be a widespread, severe famine, and it was clearly prophesied. And a collection for the Jews is mentioned in Romans 15. And it says, Paul writes, he says, For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So Paul's line of reasoning in it is it's only appropriate that Gentiles, as it were, repay something of a spiritual debt that they owe to the Jews who've brought us the gospel. You know, the, all the, the prophets were, were Jewish. 
our Old Testament has come to us through Judaism, that Jesus was born in Israel, a Jew, the Messiah. So this Torah, the Old Testament, those, the books of the law and the whole of the Old Testament, we owe it to the Jews. We say, thank you, God, for this rootstock on which the fruit of New Testament grace and love fulfilled in Jesus Christ can grow. And he's saying, if we've shared in the privileges that have come through Messiah Jesus, we should be willing to repay through whatever means we can, some form of encouragement to them and support them in their material needs. As we'll see shortly, Paul describes this offering as an act of grace. It really was an act of grace. For the young Macedonian converts to have contributed to the needs of others so willingly and wholeheartedly, God's grace must surely have been at work in their lives. So today, as we wrap up this series on Christian uh, habits, habits of grace, the spiritual disciplines, as we look at this final aspect of giving, I can't hope to cover everything that could be said about giving. But just two things I want to do. One is to show from 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 why generous giving is such an amazing demonstration of God's transforming grace at work in human lives. Why it's such an amazing demonstration of God's transforming grace at work in our lives. And to give some tips and pointers on how you and I can grow more generous hearts because it's from the heart that we give. So the sorts of things that we can do that can help train our heart and keep it on track towards godliness has got to be helpful for us. So as always, let's begin with the word. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 and then tease out what this grace of giving can look like in our own lives and circumstances. Because let's face it, What I said at the beginning about forgetfulness can easily happen when it comes to giving. We can forget. And we can forget on a sustained basis until the norm becomes that we're not generous hearted. So in 2 Corinthians 9, just the first section here, Paul exhorts the Corinthians to follow through and complete what they'd resolved to do last year, that is, hold that collection for the Judean Christians. So he's saying, there's no need for me to write to you about this service to God's people. I know you're eagerness to help. I've been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year, you and Achaia, southern Greece, were ready to give. And your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. But I'm sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready, as I said you would be. For if any of the Macedonians come with me and they find you unprepared, then not to, not to, you know, we, not to say anything about you as well, would be ashamed of having been so confident because he knows I haven't really got their act into gear yet. So he's stirring them up and, he, and he's saying, you know, come on, let's do it. But he does it in a gentle way, not a legalistic baton-bashing kind of way. He's saying, come on, you promised last year. He, he just 
prompts them and he says, look, there's going to be some visitors. So he uses their sense of honour to sort of prod them into a bit of further action. He wants them to avoid being inconsistent and hypocritical, saying one thing and doing another. It would not be a good look for the Corinthians or for the gospel if they failed to act on their promise. Nothing tarnishes a good reputation like hypocrisy. Nothing tarnishes a good reputation like hypocrisy. People can see straight through it and, and everything you stand for gets undermined. And Paul does not want the Corinthian converts to face that added battle. They already have enough of a tough time in their circumstances in Corinth without being thought to be hypocritical. Now, notice the emphasis and priority given to generosity over duty, verse 5. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangement, the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. He, he's encouraging them to fasten on to the fact that they had generously promised to do this. And he's he's not so much emphasising the duty component. You must do this. Be be diligent. Follow through. It's not coming through from the point of view of thou shalt. He's saying you promised. And he's stirring them up and encouraging them that way. And I think that's helpful for us to bear in mind. The point here is that God himself is the motivator of generous giving. And such giving is really an act of grace. See what he says. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. Yeah, 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 I know, I promised, okay. I had more money then or I've lost my job since or, yeah, we've gone and done, you know, we've put a deck on the house and we've fixed a few things up. I had some car repairs and, you know, I'm really, you know, the, the, the funds are down low now so I, I can't quite do what I, what I promised to do then. And, and Paul is saying to them, come on, come on. Remember what you promised. We don't want this to be something that's extracted from you like a tooth. We want it to be something that you generously give like you'd originally said you would. And, and Paul is stressing this as an act of grace. Now, to see this, we have to go back to chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 1. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. And then he describes how they gave. The northern part of Greece, the Thessalonians, the Philippians, the Bereans. He's saying it's a grace from God. In chapter 8, verses 6 and 7, so he urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we've kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. So he's stressing a grace-based approach to this whole thing. 
He's, he's pointing out the significance of what God has done for us in Christ and saying, let that be the foundation motivator in what you do. And as he sees that working out in their lives, he says, here is an act of grace. God is at work. Chapter 9, verses 14, the, the chapter we've just looked at. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you. That's the Judean believers who'll be blessed when this collection is, is brought by Paul and Barnabas back to Jerusalem and distributed and, and because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Grace. So... Why was their giving an act of grace? Why is Paul fastening on to this? Well, there's a number of reasons. For young Gentile converts to rise so quickly and so wholeheartedly above deep-seated cultural and racial differences and respond to the needs of Jewish believers could mean only one thing. God's grace was at work. God's grace. Remember, this is a Jew-Gentile thing. As the Jews were in the Old Testament were forbidden to eat with Gentiles, often the result of that kind of behaviour over time was that the Gentiles came to resent the Jews, thinking that they were superior then. They thought of themselves as too toffee-nosed, you know, this is beneath my dignity. So there was this Jew-Gentile thing that was really difficult to overcome and it was deep-seated. And yet these guys hadn't been converted very long and they're rising to this challenge and as we'll see, they're eagerly pleading with Paul for the opportunity to give. God's got a bit of work in that. Chapter 8, verse 2, they, they weren't well off themselves. See what it says. In the midst of a very severe trial, there, meaning the Macedonian, the northern Greek people, the Thessalonians, the Philippians, in the midst of their severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service for the Lord's people. Now, the only explanation for this can be God's grace is at work. These people who are suffering persecution who are impoverished themselves, are actually pleading with Paul, saying, but we want to give more, we want to give more, we want to help out. They are so grateful to God for the apostles who came out of Israel and spread this gospel. Remember, Paul was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, but he sent as an apostle to the Gentiles. And he comes to these Gentiles in northern Macedonia. God opens Lydia's heart in Philippi. She responds and believes. The Philippian jailer, and his heart is opened and he believes, and all his family, and a church gets planted there. And as they are taught and they come to understand where this message about Jesus Christ comes from, they realise this has come from that mob, the Jews. Perhaps I'd better rethink my attitude towards them. And as 
they are taught and they grow in their awareness and understanding, they come to the point of saying, we want to give. They urgently pleaded without being prompted to give. It was from their heart. This could only mean one thing. God's amazing grace was at work. We, we know that they gave beyond their ability without prompting, pleading for that privilege for people they'd never met. God's grace was at work. And their act of grace mirrored God's biggest act of grace. Verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So Paul is saying there's a gospel motivation here. God who so loved the world, who gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, did so out of the fullness of his love, unprompted by us, but seeing our needs, seeing the circumstances, knowing that we were dead in trespasses and sins, sent his only begotten son as an act of grace. That we might share in the fullness of God's love and grace, and that might overflow in abounding grace and love toward others. That we might start to love one another with pure hearts fervently. And that knows no racial boundaries, no gender boundaries, no social class boundaries. That overflows in love toward all mankind. So 2 Corinthians 9 This chapter that we had read to us, verses 6 and 7. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now that word cheerful, in the original Greek, it's, it's the word that we derive hilarious from. The Lord loves an hilarious giver. It's hilarion is the word. And it, it, it literally means you're just absolutely joyful at the opportunity to give. And he's saying the Lord loves that kind of giving, not, mm, I suppose, all right, um, Not something that's like pulling teeth, but something that's, can I? Thank you for the privilege. Wow. Oh, Lord, you mean so much to me. That is the kind of basis to it. And it's overflowing in our heart with such cheerfulness that the Macedonians just typify it saying they pleaded with us urgently for the privilege of participating in this offering and they did it out of their own poverty, completely unprompted, and they did it for people that they'd never met. That's grace. Whoever sows sparingly, reaps sparingly. There's this sowing and reaping thing and it's got an honourable place in the Bible. There's quite a history to do with sowing and reaping in Scripture. God always blesses what he loves. 
Genesis 1.28. God made Adam and Eve in his own image. And he said, God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. He's blessing what he loves. Jesus blessed the loaves and the fishes before distributing them. And there was more left over than what they started with. Twelve basketfuls and then seven basketfuls on another occasion. Blessing, overflowing, more than we could ask or imagine. Sowing, reaping. When, when we sow to the Spirit, we reap from the Spirit. When we sow motivated by the gospel of grace, we reap acts of grace. When we sow out of a desire to honour and please the one who loved us and gave himself for us, we reap from him much fruitfulness in our lives. And not just for ourselves, for others. God makes things abound and there's a harvest of righteousness. There's, there's good works that overflow. So just think about uh, some of the um, associations in the Bible to do with this principle of sowing and reaping. Even if we just go back to Ruth. Ruth met her future husband Boaz when she was gleaning in his field during the barley harvest and this would eventually result in the birth of King David, their grandson. Ruth the Moabites, a Gentile, comes to Israel receives a husband who's a generous-hearted man who fixes his eyes on her and likes her and loves her and takes her to be his own and blesses her wonderfully and God blesses that union with the birth of King David. No wonder Galatians 6 verses 7 to 9 says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh will from the flesh reap destruction. Flesh meaning our old sin nature, if you like. So if we sow based on what we think and our human attitudes, we reap what we think and receive human attitude kind of response. But whoever sows to please the Spirit, to honour God the Holy Spirit, from the Holy Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we'll reap a harvest if we do not give up. Reaping, sowing. Paul says to the Corinthians in his first letter, he said, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their labour. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. So he's saying, look, we've sown gospel seed among you and we can see signs of the harvest coming. But also the reverse is true when God judges. Hosea, had a, he was a herald of difficult times for Israel. And he says, they sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. The stalk has no head, it will produce no flower. 
Were it to yield grain, foreigners would swallow it up. So when God blesses, there's the principle of sowing and reaping more than we ask or imagine. When God curses, that same principle of sowing and reaping brings impoverishment. Out of all proportion to what we'd expect, there's little. Or out of all proportion to what we'd expect, there's much more. God does this. The principle is, each of us is to follow through to completion before God what we plan to give. Because we'll reap his blessing one way or another, as surely as day follows night. It may not be in material things. It may be that there's overflowing gratitude and joy abounds that delights the heart of God. The blessings of the Spirit. It's, it's not a prosperity kind of gospel that Paul preached. He didn't say, if you're generous to others, they'll be generous to you. God will bless you ten times over and you'll drive limousines and have bank accounts like you can only dream of. But there are people that preach that kind of thing. And he's saying that Judean Christians didn't experience that. They had poverty, but out of the overflowing, abundant spiritual harvest amongst the Gentiles, they're receiving some material blessings to help them in the hour of need. And in turn, they can do the same as they've done spiritually. So this principle is to follow through on what God has said. That's what he's encouraging the Achaian or Corinthian believers to do. Follow through. Don't forget this principle. Remember it. You, you reap what you sow. And God is able to bless you abundantly. See verse 10. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. Notice it's a harvest of righteousness. That's what Paul's really looking for. He didn't become an apostle for the money. He became an apostle for the sake of the gospel. So that by all possible means, some might be saved. And his desire was to reap a spiritual harvest amongst people and see many people come to faith in Christ. So the truth is, God returns to us far more than we can ever give. He multiplies the benefits of generosity as Jesus did with the loaves and fishes. And he does it for his glory. He does it so that the gospel can grow. I'll just quickly uh, summarise chapter 9 like this. You will be enriched, others will be grateful, much prayer will be offered and God will be praised. That's really the line of reasoning. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. Others will become grateful because of that. Through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Much prayer is going to result from this. He says, this service that you perform is overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you for the surpassing grace God has given you. So there's lots of praise and prayer generated toward the Lord because of this act of generosity. And God is getting the glory. 
Others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. So we get enriched as we give. Others are grateful for what is given. Prayer is the result, especially thanksgiving and praise. God gets the glory. God is glorified. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. We've really got to learn to take to heart what Jesus said, that it's more blessed to give than to receive. Being on the receiving end of generous giving is one thing. It's good. Being the giver is even better because that's what God does. God so loved that he gave. It's more blessed to give than to receive because that's where the Lord multiplies the blessing. That's where fruit is born. That's where the principle of sowing and reaping comes into play in a positive way. And God's glory gets magnified and extended. Lots of prayers of gratitude rise up. Like we see when Lydia died in in the book of Acts, Tabitha or Lydia. And people were grieving because she'd been so generous-hearted. And and they brought in the things, the garments she'd sewn. And there was just lots of, of gratitude for this dear woman for her good works. Her good works accompanied her confession of faith. So generosity is a sign of the outworking of the gospel in our life. That's the bottom line. It reveals a heart that is renewed by God. And in the Corinthians' case, their renewed hearts resulted in themselves dedicating themselves first to God. Paul says, and they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us by God's will. Notice that order. First to the Lord. And then to us, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things will be given to you as well. And he says they exceeded our expectations. So listen to how Paul describes to Titus the effect of such grace to change and direct a believer's heart. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches or trains us to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Eager, not under compulsion, but a willing generosity of heart that only the Holy Spirit can produce. So we can summarise 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 like this. The gospel generates generous acts of grace. The gospel generates generous acts of grace. That's what the gospel does. And it isn't just confined to giving. Uh, Just a few uh, simple tips and pointers. Um, What about tithing? I can imagine people saying, well, where's tithing fit in? It's very significant that in a passage like we've been looking at, 
that there's no reference made to the Old Testament teaching on tithing. The law of the tithe is transformed by the gospel into generous acts of grace generated in our heart by the Holy Spirit. That's the whole point of what Paul's been getting across. Not once does he go back to Leviticus and quote anything to do with thou shalt. Not once does he go to Exodus and quote from the law and say thou shalt. Setting aside one-tenth of our income for God's use is a useful guide for where to begin with our giving. But that's about it now, under the gospel. After all, how can a Christian pretend to give generously to God and give less than what a Jew had to give under the law? How can you call that generous giving when in the Old Testament the, the Jews had to do it? It was... They were obligated, that's what the law taught. And if we, in the name of the greater blessings of God's new covenant in Christ, claim to have generous hearts, how can we give less than that and think of it as generous? So I think it's a good guide for those starting with their giving. Just just start with the principle of a tenth. That's what was required. And trust God for the grace to motivate and change your heart so that you find yourself willingly doing that. Not because you have to, but because you want to. Because God has been so good to you. And I think this is, this is where what Jesus says is in, in the Sermon on the Mount comes into crystal clear focus for us. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. But we won't get there by our obedience to the law, which is doomed to failure. We'll only inherit the kingdom of heaven by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, who's perfectly obedient for us. And then we want to give and say, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Secondly, develop a personal plan for your giving. Just a simple personal plan. Set some personal goals in line with what you know God's word teaches. And aim over time to gradually increase that. Remember, If your goal is to become a hilarious giver, a cheerful-hearted giver, then sowing a generous portion of your income into God's work and gradually increasing it over time is the way to go. God will bless that. We've just seen that. That's what this whole passage in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is about. So aim to become a cheerful-hearted giver. Recognise when there's a check in your spirit and, and you, you flinch a bit internally. You think, ooh, ooh, you know, I, don't, I don't really want to do that. Pay attention to that and ask yourself, is God putting his finger on something? Is it selfishness or is it a healthy boundary that's being crossed that you need to pay attention to and figure out the difference? Is God getting your attention because he's saying you need to change? Or is God saying, uh, 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 no, you haven't got to prove yourself to me. You, you, you know, I don't expect this of you. This is something that uh, you, you're going too far on. 
Designate the first part of your pay for the Lord. Just do that. Teenagers, I just encourage you, when you, when you get work, start to give. Hopefully you'll have already been taught before that. If you've grown up in a Christian home, you've probably even learned a bit about giving some of your pocket money or whatever. And I think that is excellent, even though you probably thought, I could have had more. But when you, when you start working, you're never going to be so free as before you're married or before you've got, before you've got a debt with a house or before you've got you know, bills galore coming in and you've got telephone bills and rates and all kinds of things. You're never going to be so free. If you can't give then, you probably won't ever give. So just make it a principle. When you start work, start to give. Cultivate the habit of sticking by your plan. When you encounter some unexpected bills, this will grow your faith no end. That, that, that's the purpose of, of having your faith stretched, so you can grow. And allocate areas of priority, like to the church, missions, sponsor child, donations. There's all kinds of areas in which we can give. Work out before God your priorities and follow through on your plan. Just like he said to the Corinthians, he said, follow through on what you resolved in your heart to give. See what he says in verses 6 and 7, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So there's some kind of resolving in our heart to give. There's a prompting of the Spirit. Pay attention to that. And figure out what your priorities are going to be. I'll just give a little plug here. I do encourage people to consider some sort of priority to giving to support their local church because that's where we get equipped and encouraged, but not at the expense of missions. It's not that you give, I give my tithe or my offering or whatever it is to the church, and then, you know, $5 here and there maybe to a missionary. You've got to work out, you know, what you can do. And remember, circumstances will change. You may, may go through times of unemployment and, you know, finances are really scarce. The Lord knows that. He knows that. He understands your heart. I, the Lord, test the heart. And when he's at work in a person's heart, he knows if the desire to give is there, but the ability isn't. So don't beat up on yourself over that, but have a plan, work out your priorities and go with it. If you stick with your plan, you will train yourself to become a more strategic and generous giver. We have a rule of thumb at the branch. We give to missions together as a church. We also encourage individuals to support missionaries because to some degree what we invest in will shape our outlook and what we care about. So by encouraging also uh, individuals to give to missions, it helps you have more of an involvement in that, more of an interest in that, and it will help shape your heart more generously. We care about the gospel, so we're interested in supporting the work of the gospel, both here and abroad. We want to see people coming to faith in Christ, so we're willing to support that and back that with our wallet. So as a church, we, we give 
and we encourage individuals within the church to give. Remember, everything that comes in here at the branch gets allocated somewhere, and it's not to shareholders uh, for profit margins and returns. There's wages, there's support for missions, there's upkeep and maintenance and all of that kind of thing, but everything that comes in goes out in some way or other and is dispensed for the sake of the gospel, 100%. So either supporting the work of the gospel or contributing to the extension of the work of the gospel. That's the goal. So remember also, it's not just your money, it's your time. Generosity of heart does not confine itself to money. It's time, it's use of your skills and abilities, your experience. Have you got musical ability? Why not put it to use with the music team? See Chrissy or Carl. Can you work with children or teenagers? Why not help with little buddies or creche or Sunday school or Leaf Youth? See me about that. See Lisa. We'll, we'll be able to put you to good work. Join a roster and begin to serve or pitch in and help whenever you see a need you can meet. You'll be helping train a generous heart. Ask yourself this important question. How can I best use what I'm good at for the gospel? How can I best use what I'm good at for the gospel? And there's all kinds of stories, and I haven't got time to to relate them, but all kinds of stories have come out of that. People who've asked themselves that question, what am I good at that I can use for the sake of the gospel? God multiplies it amazingly. So a simple challenge for you. Why not set aside some time this week to pray and devise a generous giving strategy if you haven't already? Aim high, but be honest. Be prepared to revise it, but never to forget it. Don't be like me when Robin said, bring me home a hot chicken. (laughs) Don't be like that with the Lord. Bring home a harvest of righteousness. Let's pray.